Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete by joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that as we look into your word, as we understand what it means to live and die as those who are in Christ, as those who have been changed by the gospel, what it means to receive joy as we, as we know you, as we live as citizens of your kingdom worthy of your gospel. Lord, as we stand fast in the midst of opposition, we stand fast together in the midst of that opposition for the advancement of your gospel. Lord, as we humble ourselves, deny ourselves, as your son did, as our model and example, as we do that for unity in the body, for the advancement of the gospel, you'd help us. Lord, we ask for your help that you, that as we pursue holiness and obedience together so that your gospel would be advanced, so that your son would be made known, so that we would receive joy, that you would be glorified. We ask for your help in all of this as we look to your word today, that you would help our, um, help our understanding, you would turn on the lights so that we would see the truth, that you would give us hearts that rejoice in it, that are repentant before it, that love you and serve you. For your glorious name we pray, amen. Amen. Whenever I talk about church membership, whenever I talk about church membership, I often get um, this kind of look of suspicion from people. It's interesting, it's, it's kind of like, what's this strange new teaching he's talking about, right? Where did this crazy idea come from? Almost as if I'm gonna ask you for your last three years of tax returns. I, I feel as if like I've asked people to line up after the service so I could administer an enema to them. Really, that's the kind of look I get. And, th and then this question comes, inevitably this question comes, why do I need the church? Why do I need the church? Why do I need church membership? Which is loosely translated, why, um, why can't I live my life by myself and for myself? And, and, this person says, I believe the gospel. I believe that I'm a sinner, that God created me, that I fell into sin. I believe that. 
that I walked away from him, that he wanted me in fellowship with others and with himself, and, and I walked away from that. I believe that. I believe that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived for me in my place, keeping the law, being obedient in all things, tempted in every way, yet without sin. I believe that. I believe that he went to the cross and paid my penalty for me, that God poured out his wrath for my sin, the just condemnation due to my sin upon him on the cross. I believe that. I believe that he rose from the dead on the third day. I believe that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he sent his spirit. I believe that. And that his spirit comes into me to regenerate me, to give me new life. I believe that so that I do believe, so that I have faith, so that I'm united to Christ, so that I'm united to other people. I, I believe all that's good. I'm saved there. Now, because of that faith, I, I believe that my sin was put on Jesus on the cross and that his righteousness is credited to me from his perfect life. I believe that. I believe I have new life. I believe I have hope. I believe all that. But um, what's all this about the church and church membership? What's all this about? What's all this about some mission and advancing the gospel? You know, I, I, I work for others occasionally. I... Um, but I'm not really interested in giving my life for others in the fullest sense. You know, I have dreams. I have ambitions and goals. And God wants me to have those things. That's what God wants for me. I mean, the most popular selling book out there is your best life now. It must be true. God must want that for me. He wants me to become a better me. That's what God wants for me, right? I don't need the help of Christian people to live the Christian life? As if Jesus, somehow they say this, as if Jesus came to save them so they could live for themselves even more happily than they were before. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6 says clearly, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Hear that? Your dreams, your ambitions, your goals were crushed on the cross with Jesus Christ. They're irrelevant now. What matters is Jesus' dream, Jesus' goal. You know what that is? The furtherance of his name to the nations. And everything that you are about in your life as his, as those who belong to him, is for the purpose of serving his goals and his dreams, not your own. Not your own. And Jesus desires one thing above all else, that his church, his people would be gathered, that his church would be made holy, and that she she would be gathered from the ends of the earth by his people who are part, currently a part of her, spreading that news. That she would be saved, she'd be exalted, she'd be sanctified, that she would be with him, rejoicing in him for eternity, and that he would be exalted as that happens. That's Jesus' dream. It's a dream for a church, for the exaltation of his name. Now to be fair, some people aren't I'm so arrogant as to come out and say it that way. Some people have actually been taught that membership's not biblical. And frankly, the more I'm engaged in the battle for advancing the gospel, and the more I suffer and see my need for help from other believers, and the more I read the scriptures and see its injunctions that our lives are given for the body so that we encourage one another in the faith and confront one another, the more I see that, the more I grow weary of the foolish individualistic pride that comes spewing out of the mouths of those who think they don't need the church. The more I become weary of and disgusted by the short-sighted and biblically illiterate pastors who teach this nonsense. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Because they're denying Jesus his goal, that he would gather his church and his bride, and that it's about her and not them they act as if Jesus came to save you so that you could be more happy in your selfishness. Look, look, at me with, look with me at just a, few, a little bit of what Scripture says. Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13. Listen to what it says to you about your citizenship. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. As someone who has redemption, the forgiveness of sins, you no longer live in the kingdom that is ruled and governed by you. 
You now live in His kingdom. Romans 12, 1-4, which was part of which was read this morning, after giving this incredible, glorious explanation, exposition of salvation, of the doctrines of grace for 11 chapters, Paul launches into this, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, in light of everything else I just said, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And how does all that work out in your life? For, verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, for as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, this point is made as Paul has explained the gospel for three chapters and talked about this incredible manifold wisdom of God by which his son humbles himself, gives himself to save us as sinners. He launches in and says this, I therefore, chapter four, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, you church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And what's the calling which you've been called? To display before the universe, before angels and demons, before man, according to chapter 3, to display the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. That's what you've been called to. Walk in a manner worthy of that. And how do you do that? With all humility and gentleness. That would assume you're with other people, right? Look, it goes on. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to say, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we have leaders who train us, who equip the saints. Equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. Why? So that they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So that they grow into the fullness of him who is the head. Hear that? 1 Peter 2. You, but you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's an ethnicity. It's your ethnicity. What your ethnicity is? Holiness. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That Here's the reason, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now here comes the objection. But those all assume the universal, invisible church. And what you're talking about is a local, visible church. Is that right? So when Paul says to use your gifts to build up one another and and to speak the truth and love to one another, and to care for each other's physical needs. Um, can you tell me how you're able to do that thing, those things for a member in the church in Bangladesh? By the way, I just chose the word Bangladesh because I like saying that nation's name. Can you, can you tell me how you can do that? When Paul tells us to appoint elders or leaders, and that you should financially care for them as the people in their church, and when Hebrews says to follow those leaders and obey them, when Jesus says we should confront someone in sin, and if they don't repent, we should take it to the church, does that mean that you're responsible to have some worldwide election for church elders? That you're responsible to follow all of them, regardless of what church they go to? That you're responsible to fund them all financially? And that when we discipline someone, instead of doing it in a regular church like this, we should have some kind of satellite broadcast so all the churches of the world can hook up and have a church discipline together? Is that what that means? Of course not. Of course not. The majority of the time, the New Testament is either directly addressing a local church, 
Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, what else? Thessalonica, etc., etc. Majority of times either directly addressing a specific local church or is by obvious inference talking about the local church, talking about the visible church. And what the New Testament says is that you're saved into the universal church and as such you're also, you're also a member of a local church that you also join into membership of the local church. So the question really is or really should be how do church members, how do church members conduct lives worthy of the gospel for the advance of the gospel? Not should there be church membership. That's not the real question. The real question is how do those of us as members of church conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel so that the gospel is advanced among the nations? Well, this is where our text today comes in. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. So you know, up till this point, Paul has been talking about his own life and ministry, his imprisonment, the fact that gospel is advancing in spite of the fact that he's in prison. He's been talking about that. He's been talking about the fact he's thankful for their prayers, that he's thankful for them, that the Holy Spirit, he believes, is going to be supplied to him to help him be strengthened in his continuance of his imprisonment and his suffering for the advance of the gospel. And that he wants to live um, in, some, in one sense for their good, and he wants to die in the ultimate sense because he wants to be with Jesus. And he turns around and he says this, verse 27, the first word, only what a, what a strange word for him to begin with, by the way. Only. What's he saying? Only. He's turning to them. He's turning from, Paul's turning from my condition and my situation. Now he's turning to the church. Here's what I want to tell you. Only. This one thing. You ready to hear it? This one thing I want for you, church. This one thing I want for you, Philippi. Here's what it is. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hear that? This one thing I want for you. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, as Paul tells Titus. What does he mean by that word manner of life? That word manner of life is the word from which we, um, we get the word citizen. It means to be a citizen. Paul actually uses this in Philippians 3, verse 20. He tells them this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippi is a colony of Rome, and to be a colony of Rome means you get massive privileges that come from one thing. When you are a colony of Rome, you are therefore citizens of Rome. And to be a citizen of Rome is, is like belonging to Rome. Rome is everything for you. Your citizenship with Rome is your life. That's everything for you. Everything. And so for Paul to come in here and say, um, you're citizens of heaven. You're citizens of heaven. You have to have a citizenship that is worthy of the gospel. Your citizenship is tied to the gospel, not to Rome. Not to, is a radical concept. I'm going to come and say that. In fact, it's the kind of concept that almost got Paul killed. This little church attempting to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, citizens whose lives are worthy of the gospel, know what that means in their practical daily life. They know what it means because of Paul's example. What happened to Paul when he came to Philippi? A little demon-possessed girl went around town and taunted him all day. He finally got tired of her and rebuked the demon. The demon left her. The people who owned her got upset because they were making money off of the demon-possessed girl. That's pretty sick, I know. And they were making a living off. And they take him before, him and Timothy, they take him before the townspeople in Acts 16 is the story. And they say, look, they're upsetting our manner of life. They are going against our customs. They are teaching things not lawful for Roman citizens to practice. And so what happens? The crowds gather together and they give Paul and Timothy a severe beating. And they imprison them. And the Philippians know when, when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, you're citizens of heaven, 
What, what do they know? They know that if we live by the dictates of the kingdom of light, by the kingdom of his glorious son, if we live by the dictates of the gospel, if we live in that way, we face severe suffering and persecution in our own town. They knew that. But he says, listen, that's your primary citizenship. You're not primarily an American. Hear that? You're primarily a Christian. Your citizenship is not primarily found here in this temporal life. Your citizenship is found primarily in heaven. Now, it is manifested in a visible way here in the church. That's true. In the local visible church. And what Paul's saying is your local visible church, Philippi, your local visible church should be a church in which you as citizens in that church of citizens ultimately the kingdom of heaven, in which you live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ together. And he starts to define what that looks like. Now, I want to say this real quick. Worthy of the gospel of Christ does not mean that you need to work harder to secure the gospel and its benefits for your, on your behalf. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, you know what, if you would just work harder, you can now secure the gospel for you. You've got to be worthy of the gospel. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, as those who've already secured the benefits of the gospel, now live like that's true. This is true of you. Now act like it. That's what he's saying. You're citizens of heaven. You are um, people who have been united with Christ You've been united by his spirit also to one another. You're God's children, your brothers in Christ, saints, those who are loved and called by God, crucified with Christ, resurrected from spiritual death, a new creation, indwelt by the spirit. All this is true of you because of the gospel. Start acting like it. Live that way. That's what he says. And he gives three points of what that life looks like. Three major um, movements and what that looks like what that life looks like. The first one is here in verses 27 through 30, and it's the idea of standing firm while you advance the gospel. As you advance the gospel, you stand firm in the faith. The second major movement is in chapter 2, 1 through 5, which is this idea of humbling yourself or denying yourself for the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to take on that one primarily next Sunday at our Christmas service. I'll talk about it a bit today, primarily next Sunday. And the third one is this idea of pursuing holiness or obedience from tw verse 12 through 18 for the advancement of the gospel. All under that banner of this one thing, let your lives be worthy, lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. So to look at today, the first one is this idea of standing firm for the advancement of the gospel. And look what he says, and I'm going to break this into two, part, two parts. First, you have to consistently stand firm as a united front. Consistently stand firm as a united front for the advancement of the gospel. Let, let me address the idea of consist consistency first. Look what he says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, verse 27, so that, why? Why is he worthy of the gospel? So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. What's he saying? I don't know whether I'm going to come and see you or I'm going to be absent. I don't know. But either way, I don't know if I'm, going to get in, if I'm going to get killed in this prison. I don't know if I'm going to be let go. I don't know if when I get out, I'll come to see you. I don't know if I'll take the gospel of Spain. I don't know, but either way, consistently stand firm. I want you to stand firm either way. It's this idea of consistency. Not just on Sundays, right? Not just when the pastor or some other person in the faith you respect is around, but consistently. You know, I, I learned about this consistency thing when I was a youth pastor. I used to go to the high school football games. And when I'd go, you'd see big crowds of youth gathered together. Now, I had like 250 youth in my youth group, so I didn't know a lot of them. And any of them here would tell you I didn't know a lot of them. And so I would walk through the stadium, and every time I would walk past some group of kids, I would hear, you know, F-bombs being dropped. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not going to say what they were. And I'd hear all kinds of language like that being used. And as I would walk by, and all of a sudden I'd hear this, shh, 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 that's our youth. That's our youth pastor. Shh. I didn't even know who these kids were, right? But they knew who I was. They wanted to be consistent in the sense only when I was around. They wanted to give this image, put on airs, put up a front. What Paul's saying is be consistent, consistently standing firm for the gospel. 
consistently standing firm for the gospel. And he doesn't just say be consistent. We want you to stand firm consistently. What? As a united front. Look what he says there. Stand firm. That's the main verb there. Stand firm. He goes on. He says, in one spirit. I think that refers to the Holy Spirit specifically. Why go down to chapter 2, verse 1? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The Holy Spirit seems to be what he's appealing to all the way through here. He wants them to stand firm in the Spirit. Now, as those who are united to, to Christ and to one another by the Spirit, he wants them to stand firm. And look what he says. With one mind, striving side by side. That phrase, striving side by side, is a participle. It's modifying this verb of stand firm. So here's how you're going to stand firm. Now how are you going to stand firm? You're going to stand firm by striving side by side with one mind, one purpose, one direction, one mindset, one set of affections. Stand firm together, side by side. Strive with each other. Work together. It's the kind of word you would use for like teamwork among soldiers or people on the same athletic team. It's the idea that you work together for the advancement of the gospel. You stand firm. You help each other. You need one another, and you stand firm together for the gospel. He goes on, and and, and if you want to see how he he sees this happening even in his own life and ministry, look at verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why did he say that? Because of your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You Philippians stood firm with me in the gospel. You partnered with me. You fellowshiped with me in the gospel. I'm asking you to do that together. Continue to. He goes in verse 19, he talks about, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You not only helped me and supported me financially and by sending Epaphroditus to come and help me personally, physically while I was in prison, you actually pray for me. You plead with God for me to supply his spirit. The idea of a military term. I'm on the front lines as a soldier and I'm taking massive enemy fire and you have picked up the walkie-talkie and you have cried out to the general, send him more supplies. Help him in the battle. And you know what? The general has sent the Holy Spirit to help me. You have joined with me. You have worked together with me for the advancement of the gospel. How do I know it's for the advancement of the gospel? Look at the next phrase. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This isn't speaking about their experiential, subjective experience of faith. This is the faith, objective. It's the doctrine that we teach, the gospel message we proclaim, that which is contained here in the word of God. Stand firm with me. Strive side by side with me. That's how you stand firm as a united front. Consistently striving side by side. That's how we're going to stand firm for the gospel so it would advance. Second part of that standing firm is consistently standing firm, not only as a united front, but as a courageous front for the advancement of the gospel. We need to be courageous as we advance the gospel. Look what he says, the second participle. He's given you this idea, standing firm. How is it done? Two ways. Striving side by side or working together. And second, not being frightened. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have this idea of not being frightened by any, of anything by your opponents is the idea of like um, when horses are startled. You know, if you have a whole group of horses and they're startled, um, and extra biblical literature comes out of this idea, the horses are startled and they, they come stampeding through, and you kind of stand in the midst of that. In the midst of that's what it's talking about, not being frightened, right? It's, you know, you, you think about it in athletics. Uh, if you ever watch UFC, you guys in Ultimate Fighting, right? And these guys, what, what's great about boxing, if you've seen boxing, if you haven't seen Ultimate Fighting because you think it's too um, gory and you're a little bit feminine that way, then boxing, you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, but boxing, you know, what happens right before the fight every time? What happens? The, the fighters come out and what do they do? 
They stare each other down, right? And that's one of the most fun parts of the fight, to see who's the nastiest looking guy at staring each other down, right? They're, what are they trying to do? They're trying to intimidate their opponents, aren't they? They're trying to put the fear into their opponents. And what Paul's saying is, do not let your opponents, the enemies of the gospel, Satan, the world, do not let them put the fear into you. Don't let them stare you down and intimidate you. Chinese church, you guys hear much about the underground church in China? Call it the underground church. It's larger than, I think, the whole evangelical movement in the United States. They, they get attacked viciously by their government. Frequently, just recently, um, a whole church, one of the first megachurches in China, has 50,000 members underground in that one church, incidentally. Um, they were meeting to worship God, and um, 400 riot police came in and began to beat them and put them in prison. The kind of opposition they face. That's the kind of opposition the church in Philippi would face. And you know what they do? They go to prison. You know what they do? They sing hymns just like Paul did. They get out of prison, they go back, and they keep preaching the gospel. They will not be intimidated by their opponents. Will not be. They will advance the gospel. They will be courageous as they stand firm for the gospel so it advances. But today, Christians seem almost, the West seem almost paralyzed by fear and intimidation because of what's happening in the surrounding world, don't we? We've forgotten the great hope that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who would believe. A guy named E. Stanley Jones said this was a missionary, he said it this way, the early Christians, the early Christians, these Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. They didn't say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look at what has come into the world. That's what we should be about. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So where does this courage come from? Paul says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. That you should have courage. You should have confidence. Why? This is a clear sign to them. When, they, when you're not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them, what? Of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In other words, it's a double-sided sort of sign. When you're not frightened or intimidated, it's a double-sided sort of sign that says, you know what? You face judgment and destruction, and I face salvation, mercy, grace. Now, it's not a sign that the opponents necessarily get, but it's a sign of confidence to you. Gives you courage. It's a sign to you. It's a sign of their, clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Um, yesterday, I saw the, I, I don't know if you guys, after it rains and they, they start, the sun starts to come out and you go outside and oftentimes you'll see the rainbow. And I saw this rainbow, beautiful rainbow in the sky. And the kids looked at it, and stepdad and mom looked at it. We were looking at this rainbow. What's a rainbow? It's a sign from God. I will never, he gave to Noah and to all of mankind after him, I will never again destroy the world by flooding it. And every time I see that rainbow in the sky, every time I recognize that God is a God who makes and keeps promises. It's a sign to me. It gives me confidence gives me courage. And what he says is, you know what? When opponents come against you and you stand against them, it's a sign to you. What's it a sign to you of? It's a sign to you that you're his, that you're saved, and that they will be judged. He actually gives evidence for this. He says, look, there's, you, you, you've been given twofold evidence for this, the evidence of faith and suffering. Look, look what he says in verse 29. For why is it a sign of your salvation? Why is it a sign of their destruction? And that from God? In other words, he's put you before these opponents and had you stand firm in the face of these opponents as a sign to you. He's put you in this situation as a sign to you of their destruction and your salvation. It's from him. Why? For, verse 29, it has been granted to you. That's the word graced to you. Think about this, okay? It's been grace to you. It's been graciously given to you as a favor from God. What has? This should shock you. Not only to believe, right? Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Hear that? It's been graciously given to you as a favor from God, not only to believe, but to suffer 
for his sake. How many of us think about that? Man, God has graciously, as a favor to me, given me suffering for his sake. As a sign to me, to give me confidence and courage so I stand firm for the advance of the gospel. This specific encouragement here is Verse 30, engage in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I have. In other words, God has put you in a conflict. He's given you opposition. Just like he gave to me as an apostle, he's giving to you. He's given to you. Why does this give us confidence? Why is suffering a sign of our salvation? Faith we know, right? We know why faith is this sign that gives us confidence, don't we? But suffering seems so counterintuitive. It's shocking to think of God saying to you, I'm graciously giving you the favor of suffering so that you'll have confidence in the faith. So that confidence you're saved. Well, it, it, it gives us confidence for two reasons. Let me give you one that isn't specifically being addressed here in the text. The first one is it gives us confidence because suffering improves your character, making you more like Christ, giving you more hope. Romans chapter 5 Paul says this, talking about faith and suffering here. Therefore, verse 1 of Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, declared righteous, forgiven by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to him. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And as a result, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice that we'll be with him. Why? Because we've been justified by faith. Faith has given us confidence. It's given us courage. It's a gift of God, graciously given to us as a favor to give us confidence that salvation is ours. But he goes on in verse 3 and he says this, More than that. Hear that? More than that. What? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Hear that? More than that. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 12 when he is suffering, when he has an angel of Satan, a messenger of Satan sent, sent to do what? to just basically cause suffering in him, this thorn. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. Why did the Lord send it to me? Because I, to keep me from becoming too prideful, is what he says. Working on my character. To keep me from becoming exceedingly prideful because of the great ministry I have, God sent me this message. I pleaded with him three times to take it away. And the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That should give you confidence. Most specifically here, however, the confidence comes because you're sharing in Christ's suffering. Not just because it gives you character, builds character, but because you are sharing in his suffering. Listen to what he says in Matthew, in the Beatitudes. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 5, and he does this interesting, um, it's basically it's a Hebrew literary device called an inclusio. It's like parentheses he puts around the passage. In, in Matthew chapter 5, in the in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts off with these Beatitudes and he puts these parentheses, kind of these bookends to tell you about the nature of this passage. And he says this in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are they? They are the ones who recognize their sin. They are the ones who recognize that their self-righteousness gives them no hope. They are the ones who repent of that and turn and see that the Lord Jesus is their only hope. Trusting in him is their only hope. That's the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have faith in Jesus, who recognize their utter spiritual bankruptcy and coming condemnation apart from him. Theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on, he gives all these shall be. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Future. Blessed are those who are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Etc., etc. But look at verse 10. He comes back to this for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? Not only blessed are those who have faith that Jesus is their only hope, that, are spiritually bank, that they're spiritually bankrupt, they have nothing apart from him, but blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who have fellowship with him because they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This dual confidence. It's brought out in Acts 5. What happens to the apostles? They understand this. They've been told by Jesus, the world hated me first. It's going to hate you. You're going to be united to me through faith. You'll fellowship. It's going to hate you. It hated me already. And what are the, uh, 
What do the apostles do? They get a beating. They're proclaiming the gospel and they catch this beating, right? They're told, don't ever go out and proclaim the gospel again. And what do they do? They leave the temple, it says, rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Do you hear that? Counted worthy to suffer for the name. Philippians 3.10, what does Paul say? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. What's he saying there? I don't want to just know him and be saved through faith. I want the increased confidence that I get to walk with my Lord in suffering. If he will put me through that, if he will count me worthy to suffer with him, that gives me increased confidence. Hebrews um, chapter 11, I'll read this one briefly. This great faith hall of fame. In verse 35, he says this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. This is for their faith so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of, sheeps and, of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Hear that? When you suffer this way, God is declaring of you, you are with my son. You fellowship with him. Not only do you believe and are with him, but I'm letting you fellowship with him, united with him, united with him, even in his sufferings, the world is not worthy of you. Give you confidence. He um, goes on and, and, and says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the witnesses? These people who've died in the faith before us, people who have even been successful in the faith in Hebrews 11 as well before us, so we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God Listen, we didn't lose that ability to suffer with Christ because we have freedom of religion. Satan comes against us in different ways. No, we don't get persecuted and thrown in jail and killed for our faith. We may soon, but we don't yet. So Satan comes across, against us in different ways. But nonetheless, Satan is working, the opponent is working as diligently as he can to stop us from standing firm, united together as a body, courageously advancing the gospel and when he does that when he is an opponent who stands against you in that way and you look to him it's a sign to you what of your salvation it's a confidence for you he's graciously as a favor allowed you to suffer with christ the second major thing he says here and i'm going to go quickly through these last two i don't have time to spend on them i will in the next couple weeks but the second major thing he says here is not only do you stand firm but you deny self for the advancement of the gospel. Look what he says in chapter two, verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, which he's assuming there is, these are statements that are, they're, they're, they're basically conditional clauses. They're given with the assumption that it's, it's what? This is the state of affairs. This is true for the sake of argument. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance and of one mind. In other words, what he says to do? Be united. Again, he's picking up on this theme. Work together. Have unity. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, put others above yourself. Deny yourself. Humble yourself. Why? Look what he says, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which was your, is, is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hear this? What Paul's saying here is, you have received immense blessings from the gospel immense blessings of the gospel, and now you're commanded to live worthy of it by humbling yourself as Jesus did. Humble yourself as Jesus did. What does this mean? You're to seek the benefit of others and not your own. 
You're to carry the cross, as Jesus says, right? To deny yourself for the sake of others so the gospel advance. When Jesus made that comment, look at Luke 14. Jesus made this comment in Luke 14 about carrying your cross. He wasn't talking about, you know, enduring your mother-in-law, okay? It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, I've got to carry my cross, I have a coworker who irritates me. That's not what he's talking about. We oversimplify these things. He hasn't died yet, right? What's the understanding? Verse 25 of Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him. Now he's gathered great crowds. Great crowds. And now he's going to give them a message that wants to keep them around, right? Now what does he say? Great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. Hate your own life. Different than love your own life, isn't it? Hate his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Cannot. He is unable to be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you're talking about the cross is an instrument of death. It's the way you were put to shame in front of the community and the way you died as a criminal. You're a criminal. They put you on a cross to shame you and put you to death. And what he's saying is, bear your own cross, you can't be my disciple. You know what it means to walk with me? It's not only to be saved by faith, but it means that you're going to have fellowship with me. You're going to go to the cross just like I'm going to the cross. You will die. You will deny yourself. What you want, what you desire, no longer matters. What I want, God wants, what he desires is all that matters. Seeking the good of others. That's it. It's your life's about Hate yourself. Hate your mother and brothers. And you, what, what's he talking about there? He's not saying that you should go home after I'm done with this sermon and tell your family you hate them. Okay? What he's saying is there's going to be opposition. Families are going to be split up. This is going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess when you follow me. You don't choose them over me. You choose me. I'm what your life is about. And look what he goes on in verse 33 and says this of Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's interesting is how he follows that up with this little, little um, statement. He says, salt is good, right? You're going, what? What a weird transition, right? Isn't it Jesus preached and all of a sudden he comes in and says this, salt is good. You, know, you just have to give up everything to be your disciple, now salt is good, right? Okay, okay. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its, how shall its saltiness be restored? right? What is salt? You're the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? You are the salt of the earth. And salt is good. If you're my disciples, as you're people who are good, right? As long as you haven't lost taste, as long as you're not what? As long as you're not salt that is not doing what? Living worthy of the gospel. That salt's good. As long as you're denying self, carrying your cross, seeking my glory, the advancement of my gospel, and the good of others, that salt is good. But if it's lost its taste, what? It, how shall its saltiness be restored? He goes on and says this. Look what he says in verse 35. It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. Hear what he says there? That's a popular crowd, uh, message to give to a large crowd, incidentally. If you won't do this, and you're claiming to be a follower of mine, and, and, and you're not interested in this, and you're claiming to be a follower of mine, you're, you're not salty salt. You're, you're not really the salt of the earth. You know what you are? You're tasteless salt. And you know what you do? You ruin manure. Fairly strong words, huh? Not only are you useless, you're worse than useless, you actually ruin manure. At least in crap, we can grow something useful. But when you're around, it's destroyed. What are you saying? That's a pretty friendly sort of message. Pretty strong, actually, is what he's saying. Any other kind of Christianity than the kind of Christianity that fellowships with me in suffering, that denies itself, that carries its cross, is useless and inconsistent with the gospel, and it's harmful. What are you saying? So he says, walk worthy. Be a citizen worthy of the gospel. And you need each other to do that. To humble yourself like Jesus did. And you've got to help each other in this. Because you know what? You haven't already obtained all this. And Paul says, and neither have I. But one thing I do, I press on. Right? Why do I press on? 
because he's taken hold of me, and so I want to make this my own. What does he say? Lastly, pursuing holiness for the advancement of the gospel, he makes this comment, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And then he lays out for six verses after that, or five verses after that, what that pursuing holiness looks like, what that obedience looks like. Living a life worthy of the gospel so it will advance obviously must include pursuing holiness or obeying God. It must. We want to be different and blameless. We want to have an aroma of grace and godliness that permeates our lives. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Because we want him to be exalted. We want to be poured out, as Paul says, for his glory, don't we? However, to do so, we need his help. And so we need to be praying ever and always for God to supply the spirit of Jesus Christ to help us remain strong as we work to advance the gospel together. We need to be praying for his help to do any of this because we have not already attained it, but we are pressing on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. And we can't press on without one another fighting for each other, not with each other. That'll harm the advance of the gospel. For each other, helping one another, pleading with the Lord for each other. And when we plead, we are not pleading with the Lord to give us life's conveniences. We are pleading with him to give us steadfastness and unity and courage and faith and humility and obedience so that the gospel would advance in this world. I I I want you to hear that kind of prayer. It's the prayer of Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India. And I'm gonna conclude with her prayer. This is the way we should be praying. She said this, from prayer that asks that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O captain free, thy soldier who would follow thee, from subtle love of softening things, from easy choices weakenings, not thus are spirits fortified, not this way went the crucified, from all that dims thy calvary, O lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask that you would work powerfully in us and through us as you have for us in Christ so that we would be a people who live to advance your gospel so that we would be citizens of your kingdom, worthy of your gospel, so that we would stand firm together in unity, courageously, being ever assured in the midst of opposition and suffering that we are yours, you are ours. Lord, that we would deny ourselves, that we would be humble as your son was, Lord, that we would pursue holiness, that we would be obedient. This would all happen consistently, whether whether we're around each other or apart from one another. Lord, that we would be pursuing this for your glory, for the sake of the advance of your gospel, for your son's name. Amen.